This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to betterhelp.com slash toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to betterhelp.com slash toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation, a continuation of the ongoing Journey to Recovery series. Today we're talking about distress tolerance, what it is and how we can teach it to people. We're going to define the goals of distress tolerance, discuss why some clients don't choose distress to tolerance, and explore a variety of distress tolerance and reality acceptance skills, including stop, pros and cons, tips, accepts, self-soothing, improving the moment, radical acceptance, and turning the mind. So I want you to think about whether you would rather start the day with an inbox full or an inbox empty. And distress tolerance is kind of like this, because if we get up in the morning and everything that happens, we get distressed, and instead of tolerating it and radically accepting and letting it go and all that happy stuff, we take it and we stuff it and we push it down there, then by the time you get to the office, you're up to here, and you've only got a little bit more room of tolerance before you're just, you know, at your wit's end. So distress tolerance helps us keep our inbox kind of kind of balanced out. The goal of distress tolerance is to accept, find meaning for, and tolerate distress. And that's, all of those things are hard. Accepting that it is, and it is what it is, and my kids hear me say that all the time, find meaning for it. And, you know, sometimes finding that silver lining or embracing the dialectics is really challenging because you just don't want it at the moment. You're, you're mad or you're sad or whatever it is. And, and that's okay. People need a chance to get through that emotion because whatever emotion they feel is how they feel. And that is a very valid emotion for that moment. And then if they learn to tolerate that emotional response, the physiological changes, the emotions, and the behavioral urges, then they can make a better choice about how to use their energy after that to improve the next moment. We need clients to remember that no matter how long they're in therapy, and no matter who they are, whether they are a multi-billionaire or they are, you know, people who are struggling, pain and distress is part of life. And refusing to accept this leads to suffering. One of the things that I encounter when I work with people who have chronic pain is the fact that, I mean, granted, we were talking initially about emotional pain, but physical pain is a part of life. You know, you shouldn't expect to live every single day, day in and day out, with no pain. We're going to get kinks in our neck. We're going to get headaches. We're going to get earaches. It's going to happen. And as we get older, some of us develop arthritis and, and other things. It happens. You know, the body starts wearing out. Some of those um, joints start going a little bit. If we can accept this and figure out how to live a rich and meaningful life despite these things, life is a lot better. You know, if, you know, for example, my garden if we want to use a different analogy. In Tennessee, we don't have soil. 
we have clay. We have a lot of clay, but we don't have soil. So planting in my garden um, has, has been really challenging. And I could have gotten upset about it and frustrated that there was, you know, no good soil. And we even brought in a load of topsoil and all I got was more clay. So understanding that and instead of getting frustrated about it, I said, okay, it is what it is. This kind of sucks right now. How can I improve the garden soil, improve the next planting season because there wasn't much I could do that season. Um, and in, so instead of fighting with it and being upset about it, I used that energy to improve the next season. We need to remember that any attempt at change will produce distress. Remember, I've said that phrase before, change causes crisis and crisis causes change. When we're going along in our normal um, activities, when we're going along and doing our normal stuff, um, it requires a lot less energy. Just like when you're driving on the interstate, it requires a lot less gas than when you're going through um, going through the city and you're having to stop and start and stop and start and slow down to make that turn and change that direction. Same thing when we try to make changes in our life. It causes us, forces us to use extra energy. And sometimes we're going to go, is this really worth the effort? And that's the crisis part. When we start questioning, is this something I'm really motivated to do or not? Because it's kind of uncomfortable. And the other way was a lot easier. So remembering that any attempt at change is going to produce distress. Therefore, distress tolerance skills are necessary. We need to have the skills to push through when something is hard, push through when something is challenging or unpleasant or scary. So one of the first skills we start with is mindfulness in order to tolerate distress we've got to know it's there and sometimes people are saying you know I, I don't know how you could not know that distress is there but some people do they've gotten so adept at compartmentalizing and stuffing that something happens and they just take it in law enforcement emergency um, responders people who work in emergency rooms people who are regularly encounter encountering crisis and trauma on a daily basis, learn how to take that, box it up, and stuff it somewhere, which is okay. It allows them to do their job for the moment. But at a certain point, you got to unbox all that stuff, or it becomes like that closet that's in the back of your house that you can't hardly close the door on anymore because there's so many boxes in there, and you don't even remember what's in half of them. So mindfulness is the first skill we teach, and I usually break people up, break groups up into four groups. Um, since we have anywhere between 8 and 15 people in a group, obviously these are small, but that's okay. You know, I'd rather have two or three people talking than have a big group talking because that gives people more time to talk. So break them into their four groups. Each group gets an issue. And one is cravings, one is depression, one is anxiety, and one is anger. And, you know, those are very vague presenting issues. Those are very vague distress symptoms. But that's okay. I want them to be able to exercise a little bit of personalization when they're doing this. So if they're experiencing cravings, it can be for food, it can be for love, it can be for drugs whatever they're thinking but craving is that thought that i have to have this right now i really need this depression you know everybody's experienced depression at some point in their life so i want them to think about when they're depressed what's going on 
anxiety, anger, the same way. So we've got people in four groups. I want them to become aware of the present moment, and I want them to think of a time that they experienced that distress in the past. And during that time, what were their thoughts? What were their feelings? What were their urges? What were their physical sensations? What were their wants and needs? And what were they able to control, and what were they not able to control? And then we go through that. And, you know, depending on the group, you're, you're going to get a lot of different answers. But this is where we start helping people become aware of how much they really recognize and how mindful they really are. Because people may not recognize when they're depressed what kind of thoughts they have, which is why this is really cool to do in group. Because when you put two or three people together and you say, when you're depressed, what kinds of things do you tell yourself? then they can start feeding off of one another and go, yeah, I tell myself that. Or, yeah, I think that when I'm depressed. And they can start becoming aware of some of these um, distress-prone thoughts that they have. Feelings, you know, no emotion is simple. So understanding what emotions go into what they're feeling. They may feel anxiety, but what else do they feel? Um, what else is, is going on with them. So I have them go through all that. They spend five to ten minutes, depending on how big the groups are. If they're groups of four or more, then, um, well, groups of four, then uh, I usually give them a full ten minutes. If it is mainly groups of two, then five, five or six minutes is usually enough for them to go through each of these things but you can tell as when you walk around the room um as they're you know they're across around the room so they're not stomping on each other when they're talking um you can hear the conversation start to drift a little bit just like you do in a classroom and you know at that point it's time for me to call it it's time for us to bring it all back together Distress tolerance is a natural progression from mindfulness because once you become aware of these distress-prone thoughts, these distressful feelings, dis distress urges, urges to stop the distress that are sometimes not helpful, um, distress-prone physical reactions, what you want and need and what you can and cannot control. Once you become aware of those things, then you can accept non-judgmentally the situation. You can go, all right, it is what it is. And some people hate that phrase, but I encourage um, my clients to embrace it at least when they're in the in the group with me because that's kind of my next to hakuna matata um th that's kind of my phrase uh so encouraging them to accept it is it's not good it's not bad it just it is how they feel so what do we do right now instead of judging yourself and saying i shouldn't feel this way or i should this feel this way i feel this way okay the situation is this you know, it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. And you could argue that a little bit. Sometimes it's a bad situation. But we want to accept the situation non-judgmentally. It, it just is what it is. What do we do? When I had my son, he was a micropremie. And that was a bad situation. Um, he was, it, I was 29 weeks along, and I was in full-out labor. Now, I could have gotten distressed and upset and freaked out about it and yada, yada. That would have made the situation worse. There was nothing I could do to change the situation. No amount of, of uh, mag sulfate was helping and crossing my legs certainly didn't work. So I had to accept the situation. It is what it is. 
Now, what are we going to do to move forward? You know, once he was born, okay, what's the next step in, or, in order to assure that this little peanut turns into a happy, healthy young man? Once we get past the acceptance, and that can be a little bit difficult, then moving into not trying to change the situation, your feelings, thoughts, or urges. So that all kind of goes together. So just saying, all right, I'm frustrated right now. Well, I can use that energy to stay frustrated and brood on it, or I can use that energy to move on. Distress tolerance means surviving crises and accepting life as it is in the moment. Remembering that tolerance and acceptance of reality don't equate with approval. You don't have to like it. You just have to accept that it is. And there may be certain parts that you can change, but there may be certain parts that you can't change. So tolerance and acceptance is a way of figuring out how to get unstuck. Think about when you're driving, especially if you don't have a four-wheel drive and you get stuck in the mud. Distress or distress intolerance is like sitting in the mud and hitting that gas and just spinning deeper and deeper and deeper. And you're spending a whole lot of energy. The engine is getting hot, just kind of like we get hot when we stew on our distress. doesn't do any good. But if you accept, okay, I'm stuck in the mud and this is not where I want to be, you accept that reality, then you can figure out, okay, how do I get unstuck? Where can I find a board to put under my wheels so I can get some traction? You know, you can start thinking that way. Sometimes people so badly want others to understand how bad it is for them that they focus on proving how bad it is instead of surviving the situation or improving the next moment. They want, they crave validation. So, you know, I want you to think what are some reasons people might crave this validation, might need at that point in time somebody to tell them, yes, this is an awful situation? What would promote that? And I want you to think back from, you know, in terms of maybe prior attachment issues or prior trauma issues where they're really needing this validation in the moment to tell them it's okay. People who have a history of emotional dysregulation are often told that it's not as bad as they think it is or they're invalidated repeatedly. So when something happens, they really want to show you how bad it is. They want to make you understand because you're not getting it. So the short-term gains of proving how bad it is, the look what you made me do, um, control another's behavior. When people cut, when pe I've had um, people in recovery who've gotten upset with somebody and they've went out and drank at them, you know, it's your fault I went out and got drunk. Um, so it was an attempt to control another's behavior through guilt. Um, another short-term gain is possibly getting a break or getting attention, getting somebody to finally notice and say, okay, let me take care of you for a while. Both of these communicate inability to or indicate inability of that person to communicate what their needs are. And it could be that they don't know. They lack that level of mindfulness about what exactly their needs are at the, at the moment. It could be um, that they, need, they feel like they need some sort of validation so they don't feel like they're crazy because they've been told that a lot. And as, as Christina points out, people who um, have a history of trauma often – not always, especially if they have um, childhood trauma, 
often develop hypocortisolism, which means they tend to be at a, you know, kind of a flat level a lot of the time. Their body's holding on to that adrenaline, but then when there's something big that happens, they go from zero to 260 in no time flat. There is no middle ground. It is they're either off or they're red hot. And that is the way their HPA, HPA axis works. It's not them going, oh, I'm just going to, you know, overreact at this, which also means that if their HPA axis is dumping that amount of uh, norepinephrine and glutamate and adrenaline, guess what? It's going to take longer for them to cool down, for them to bleed off, if you will, um, that excess stimulatory uh, neurotransmitters. So we do need to be aware of that. Uh, one thing you can do is have clients remember a time they acted out to try to get someone else to see how bad it was. We've all done it. Now, whether we did it as adults or whether we did it when we were nine, uh, we've all done it. And, and think about what the results were. Um, did it achieve their goals in some cases especially if they did it as children it may have achieved their goals in other cases they may have been completely shut down by their caregiver and it backfired and they're like i might as well not say anything to anybody because ain't nobody listening so we do want to talk about what their experience has been before we move into Identifying behaviors that make a crisis worse. And, you know, this, these are reactive things that people will sometimes do at other people. Yelling at them, that's pretty obvious. Using alcohol or drugs, look what you made me do. Retail therapy, especially with money they can't afford to spend. I mean, there's, okay, I've had a bad day, I'm going to buy a DVD that I've wanted to see for a while. And there's, okay, I've had a bad day, let's go buy a new car. Very different. Eating too much. Remember, a lot of times the foods that people do overeat are high in fat and high in sugar, which do what? Cause the brain to release dopamine and serotonin, which can help calm down um, that stimulatory reaction. It's dopamine, remember, is the pleasure chemical, and serotonin helps with calming down and reducing anxiety. Some people complain so much that people just don't want to hear it anymore. It's just like, really? Can, can you get over it? Can we ever have a discussion where it's not all about the drama in your life? So helping them see ways that their current behaviors and their current ways of reacting to crises are maybe removing some of their healthy social supports. And then finally, just giving up on solving the problem altogether, which is learned helplessness. None of these help improve the next moment. None of these are ways of using your energy in order to get from an unpleasant state, which is now, to an improved moment, which is you know, five minutes from now or two weeks from now. So what can you do once you figure, say, it is what it is. The way I feel is, is what it is. Who I am, I am who I am. And this situation, it is what it is. So. Now that we've accepted that, what do we do to improve the next moment? And sometimes it's a matter of reminding clients of this when they start to get riled up, having them take a breath. And once they understand that some of the stuff we're going to talk about um, is not invalidating because we say, all right, 
you know, you're at that center point right now. You're at distress tolerance, mindfulness, and acceptance. It is what it is. Then we'll talk about what can we do to improve the situation because I hear you're hurting and I hear you are in agony right now and I want to help. So let's figure out what the next step is. Once they get used to doing that for themselves, once they get used to, okay, my therapist isn't going to freak out as soon as I start freaking out, then things start calming down. Um, my, my daughter's best friend came over the other day and just showed up on the doorstep, you know, crying, tearful, and they hadn't, well, they hadn't talked in about three months. But anyway, without even thinking about it, Haley went outside, brought her best friend in, kind of swooped her up to her room, and just kind of went into problem-solving phase. And there was no thought about the other stuff. It was just, this is the situation. What do we need to do to improve the next moment or help her friend improve the next moment? So distress intolerant thoughts. And, you know, we can make a list of these, but I want people to read through them. And I can, I usually give this as a handout. And I say, mark the ones that you often tell yourself when you're in those situations of anger, anxiety, depression, or craving. I can't stand this. It's unbearable. I hate this feeling. I've got to stop it. Take it away. I can't cope. I'm going to lose control or I'm going to lose my mind or go crazy. This feeling is never going to stop. It is so wrong to feel this way. I'm stupid. This is weak. I'm bad. Or feeling this way is really dangerous and, you know, I'm not safe in my own skin. Those are just a few of them. But these are things that clients often tell themselves. So we want to start figuring out, okay, what are ways to counter those distress intolerant thoughts? Because I truly believe that every client, every person can tolerate a level of distress. Now, that doesn't mean that every person can tolerate every level of distress all by themselves. No, not at all. But they... I believe that every person can tolerate distress. Sometimes the first step they have to take during that period of distress when they're accepting the situation is what it is, is reaching out for help, reaching out for some social support. So we'll move on to that. Avoidant behaviors. These kind of go with making the problem worse, but these are things people do to avoid dealing with the distress, to numb it out, to pretend it doesn't exist, or to give them control over something. Using alcohol or drugs usually numbs it out. Binge eating often numbs it out. Sleep numbs it out. Distraction or suppression, avoiding situations. You know, you can't deal with it if you can't see it. It's kind of like putting your fingers in your ears. Reassurance seeking or checking is a way of avoiding dealing with the distress. You're looking for other people to fix it for you. And self-injury is the one that kind of goes in both categories. For some people, um, the self-injury, the pain of the injury itself, numbs out the emotional pain. For other people who self-injure, the pain of the injury itself, the fact that they control how much pain they're in, gives them something that they feel like they can control. So there are a variety of reasons for these behaviors. But we want to look, instead of going, why are you doing that? We want to say, in what way is this helping you feel 
safer or hurt less. So urges generally are intense for about 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes a little bit less than that. When people have an urge, they can learn to surf it, just like you surf a wave. And, you know, surfers don't surf for uh, 30 minutes on a single wave, but encourage people to use this analogy. Have them surf the urge by opening themselves up to it, opening themselves up to the feeling, and just recognizing it. It doesn't mean they have to consume themselves in it. They don't have to sit there and think about it, you know, incessantly. They don't have to fight it and push it away. They just experience the feeling with acceptance and non-judgment, and they're aware that it's there, you know, on a very, very mild level. You know, think about when you see commercials in the evening for pizza or something, and you have this urge like, oh, that looks really good right now. That's an urge. That urge to get up and get something, you know, high fat and cheesy usually passes in a few minutes. You just open yourself up to the urge. If you start fighting it, then you're going to be focusing on it. Feel the urge and be aware that it's there, and you'll notice when you check in with yourself that after a little while, if you're not feeding it, it's going to get less intense. There's the trigger, then it gets bad where you're like, oh, I don't know if I can stand this, and then it almost suddenly kind of crashes out. You know, we seem, it's like really, really bad, and then, you know what? No, never mind. So urge surfing is interesting for people to um, watch themselves do, and it can, um, it can be very empowering. You're right, Carolyn, because people learn that they can tolerate urges. They can feel a feeling. They can want to do something without having to do it. They can choose how they respond to the urges. They can choose what their next step is. One of my favorite analogies is the bumblebee. Now, obviously, this is not quite the same if you are deathly allergic to bumblebees, but for those who aren't, when a bumblebee lands on you, you know, your first urge might be to swat it off. It's like, oh, it's going to sting me. I got to swat it off. But if you resist that urge and just let the bee sit there, you know, if you swat it, it's likely going to sting you, then you're going to be in pain and it's going to die and it's going to be ugly. If you just sit there and you let the bee sit on your arm until it's ready to fly away, nothing bad happens. You have the ability to react. So urges are like that bee. It comes, it lands, it makes you uncomfortable for a few minutes, but you don't have to do anything to make it go away because it'll go away on its own in good time. Stop skills are another thing that we can do. Um, the first skill in stop is stopping. You know, instead of continuing to plow through, continuing to do whatever you were doing, staying on autopilot, you stop. And you're like, all right, something's wonky right now. I'm not feeling great, whatever. Take a step back and unhook. Now, remember, unhooking is when you say, I am having the feeling that... I need to do this. I am having the feeling that I'm depressed. Instead of I am depressed, I am having the feeling that I'm depressed. Or I'm having the thought that I can't stand this instead of I can't stand this. And it's semantics, and we've talked about this in other courses. It is semantics, but it is empowering to help people recognize instead of something being part of them, it's either a thought or a feeling. And those things come and go. So let them take a step back and unhook. When they're describing the situation, 
and what's going on, that acceptance part, ha they can say, I'm having the feeling that I'm, re or I'm, I'm having the feeling that I'm angry about this right now. I'm having the thought that yada yada right now. Okay. You know, it is what it is. So they stop, start observing what's going on with them. Then they proceed mind, mindfully and they say, all right, this is the situation. This is how I'm feeling. This is who I am. This is where I want to go. You know, my ultimate rich and meaningful life. So to proceed mindfully, what do I need right now, emotionally, physically, interpersonally, spiritually, in order to improve the next moment? So again, going back to those same four groups, have them think about um, what's going on. What are your options that may stop suffering in, in the short term but maintain distress? So if you're having a craving, um, then recognize that there are a lot of options that you may have that may not be the best options for you. So what options might you choose? And remember, and they're generally going to be these options either here or here, um, that people may choose in order to stop that short-term distress. A lot of times these are reactive and push away the problem, but don't fix it in any way or make other problems. Um, what are your options that can help you reach your goals? So here are the options that are not going to help you. What are the options that could help you? What are the thoughts and feelings that you're having that are increasing your distress? So that's when you go back and look at those thoughts and feelings you're having. And what are alternate thoughts you could have that help you feel empowered? Um, so you can either do it with the four groups, you know, the craving, anxiety, anger, and depression, and have each group answer all four of these. Or you can have, break them up into, into four groups, and each group takes one of these options, and you give them a particular scenario. Like you say, okay, if you're feeling depressed, this group over here, think about what your options are that might maintain your distress. This group over here, when you're feeling distressed, what are options that might help you be happier and healthier? So you can do it either way. It kind of depends on how you want to maintain continuity. From the last activity, you know, this one right here, have the group use the results from what are your options that may stop suffering in the short term but maintain distress to answer the following questions. What are the benefits to acting on impulsive urges? There's a lot of research to indicate, and, and we probably know this, people don't do things unless there's a benefit. So if people are doing it somehow, in some way, they feel it is helping them. Um, and it could be just numbing intolerable pain. Or, you know, there are a lot of motivations that could lead to it but in what way is this helping them and what are the drawbacks to acting on impulsive urges you know going back to to the pizza again um, y'all know that's one of my weaknesses at night I hate watching regular TV because they show commercials and I'm like oh I'm hungry now it's nine o'clock at night I don't need to be eating extra calories you know eating that late disturbs my sleep and you know it's additional calories that I don't need. So that's one of the drawbacks to acting on impulsive urges. You know, you end up doing things that later on you're going, yeah, that probably wasn't the smartest choice. For each identified behavior, identify an alternate, more helpful behavior. So going back here, 
instead of yelling at someone, what can you do instead? And there's no one right answer to this. There are multiple right answers. Some people say, go on a walk. Some people say, write it down. Some people say, you know, pray, whatever. I want a menu of ideas. I'm not looking for one correct one. Using alcohol or drugs, what could you do instead? Retail therapy, if you know you do that, what could you do instead? Eating too much, you know, yada, yada. You see where we're going with this. What could you do instead of going to bed? Self-injury or just avoiding situations. So we have them identify what they could do instead. Um, and then we have them identify what the benefits are and the drawbacks are to that. Now, if you've been in the motivational interviewing classes, you see that this is a decisional balance exercise. What are the benefits of being impulsive and what are the drawbacks? What are the benefits of the new behavior and what are the drawbacks? So you can start using that um, uh, balance, decisional balance method in order to increase motivation. And uh, April points out that sometimes clients have a hard time choosing effective options. And that is so true, especially if they're dysregulated. So one of the things to encourage them is to keep a list of things with them. You know, once we go through these distress tolerance activities, keep a list of things with them that they can do in order to tolerate their distress until they can get into their more logical or wise mind, as Linehan calls it. Um, also, encouraging them to keep a list of effective interventions, things that have worked for them in the past. A lot of times, if they can get into their wise mind, if they can get out of that emotional mind, they can choose more effectively among the options. But even then, especially if they got really upset, really dysregulated, they may still be in a little bit of a crisis. And our brain does that. You know, that's, that's okay. Um, encouraging them, again, to remember, what's your emergency plan? You know, if you get really dysregulated about something and you tolerate the distress, but you can't figure out what the next right choice is, what do you do? You know, who do you call? And generally, people have somebody that they're willing to call and who can kind of be the sounding board and help, help them work through a crisis. Um, so tip skills, temperature. In order to, when you start feeling um, these overwhelming emotions, sometimes you just got to get out of that loop. You got to break the feedback loop. So change, change it up. Give yourself something else to focus on besides that intrapsychic pain. Temperature, you can hold an ice cube. That is agony. Or you can make an ice bath. I found that hurts even more. Um, get in a sauna. Go out into the sun. Um, so the sun is just beating directly on your face or on your back, um, preferably wearing sunscreen and sunglasses and all that. Take a cold shower. I avoid hot shower because sometimes people get it too hot and scald themselves, or they could. Don't want to go there. Cold shower, you're pretty safe. Intense exercise. If you start exercising and you're breathing heavy, you know, I used to laugh and say, you know, I go running because I can't run and cry at the same time. Well, it's true. <laughs> you can't. So if you're focusing on your breathing and not passing out, then it may help you get out some of that energy. It also gets your body moving at the same pace that your heart's moving at. Because when you're upset, your heart is going really fast for that fight or flee. And your body, if you're just standing there, there's a disconnect. 
So when you intensely exercise, then everything's getting back in sync. Paced breathing. You slow your breathing, it slows your heart rate. There's, there's just no option. And that also triggers the relaxation response in your brain. So serotonin and GABA can get out there and help you re-regulate. And then paired muscle relax relaxation. The act of muscle relaxation is paired with a verbal cue. And one of the things, fun activities that, that we'll do sometimes, and I did with my class at, at UF, was they would come in for class one day and they would sit down and I would say, okay, everybody clear your desks. It's gonna have, we're going to have a quiz. And you would see their eyes get really big and they'd all like start to freak out. And I'm like, ah, I'm just kidding. I just wanted you to see the effect that a verbal cue can have on your physiological responses. Now, not only can you have a verbal cue that winds you up, but you can have a verbal cue that helps you relax if you pair it with a relaxation response. Um, so another example of unpleasant arousal, and we brainstormed some of these, when somebody comes up to you and says, we need to talk. When anybody says that to anybody else, most of the time the result is tension. That's an arousal response. Positive arousal. Somebody can say, hey, let's go to dinner, and you can be like, yay, let's go. That's positive arousal. But again, a verbal cue, all of a sudden, you're getting excited. Um, or a baby laughing, you know, for some of us that does it, and we're just like, that's the greatest thing in the world. So encouraging pe people to recognize what reactions they have that are paired with verbal cues can help them start believing in the concept of cued progressive muscular relaxation. Tons of scripts online. They can go on YouTube. They can search the internet um, in order to find scripts for progressive muscular relaxation. But it can help because eventually they'll get to the point where they can say, okay, just breathe. And it reminds them to take a breath in and a breath out and they can feel the stress actually flowing out their fingertips and their toes. It doesn't happen overnight. It usually takes six or eight weeks for them to really get a good hang of it where it's really effective but it does help so we can distract with the wise mind accepts and a lot of times what i'll do you know how much i love my flip charts um, i will put flip chart papers up or you know something they can write on um, and i have people go around the room and identify you know what are some pleasant activities that you can do when you're in a bad space what types of contributing can you do that help you feel better when you're in distress? What can you compare yourself to to help you see how strong you are and how far you've come? What are things that you can do to bring out the opposite emotion? And that's kind of where the little baby was coming in. Um, you know, there, there are, listen to music, play with your dog, whatever it is that gets you into that opposite, which is a happy, relaxed sort of state. How can you push away? those thoughts, you know, thought-stopping activities. Push away those feelings for just a moment and go, you know what, no, I'm not going to go there right now. How, what else can you do to think about something totally different? You know, what types of things do you do? One of the um, suggestions that I give them is four, three, two, one. What are four things that you see, three things that you hear, two things that you smell, and one thing that you can feel? And that, you know, people have to think about that. So that kind of gets them distracted for a moment. 
another thing, I mean, we used to do this all the time on long car trips. You know, you would look for, you know, the red VW wagon or, you know, we would look at billboards and we would try to find the different level, letters of the alphabet. Whatever it was, it distracted you. So you weren't focusing on how miserable you were stuck in the car because this was long before in-car video. Another time people do this is what do they think about when they can't sleep? Some people count sheep. So they see that sheep jumping over, you know, and they're focusing on the little sheep. Me, I think about what I'm going to plant next year in the garden. I don't know why. It's just one of my weird things. But if I focus on that, that's totally relaxing, and I forget about whatever it is that's bothering me. Body scan meditation is another, people, another thing people can do, and they can um, look online to find scripts for that. And self-soothing using the five senses. So doing things that help yourself feel better by looking at things that make you happy, like a hamster in a sweater. How can you not be happy when you see a hamster in a sweater? Um, things that you smell that may make you happy. Aromatherapy, but it can be as simple as going to your spice jar and pulling out some cloves or something that, you know, is a smell that you like. I have a rose here. What do you like to hear that makes you happy? I love hearing chickadees and titmice. So, you know, I always have sunflower seeds on my, on my front porch so I can hear the birds. What do you like to touch that can make you feel happy? Um, and, you know, massage is one of those that you can do. But for some people, like kids, there are certain things like blankets that they like to touch. My daughter had this little, oh, it was a nasty little blue rhino by the end. Um, and she called it blue because it was, guess what, blue. But whenever she would get upset, she would stroke its tail. She would just carry blue around and stroke its tail. And that helped her calm down. Um, and taste. You know, what things can you do to help yourself self-soothe? And I try to encourage clients to use this one with caution because I don't want them coping by eating. But every once in a while, there's a taste. You know, you can get a butterscotch candy or you can get a cup of black coffee or something that the taste and the aroma is just helps you feel that ah moment um, so in, encouraging them to make a list of different things in each one of these areas that's self-soothing and again like we've talked about before encouraging them to make sure that there are things in each one of their regular environments you know their living room their bedroom their car and their office that help them self-soothe, you know, sight, smell, hearing, um, taste, and touch. What let, Help them make, if you want to call it, a little cocoon in each one of their places so they have a soothing place that they can go. Improving the moment means using imagery. And we talk about what kind of imagery can you use to help you get through something difficult. Um, you can imagine a safe place. If you're getting ready to go up and... Um, do something really scary, you know, imagining a safe place. Just imagining and visualizing yourself dealing with this. I had one client who imagined every time she would go in to um, visit her, her parents, uh, which it was an antagonistic sort of relationship, she would envision herself with this force field around her. So nothing that her mother said would stick, you know, kind of the I'm rubber and you're glue. Um, so it was protecting her and you know whatever works for you 
imagine a coach or a fairy godmother or that angel. Remember how Bugs Bunny used to have the angel on his shoulder all the time? Imagine feelings and thoughts are clouds in the sky. So when you have a feeling, looking up at the sky, seeing the clouds, and just kind of looking at a cloud and going, okay, that's, that's the anger, and I'm just going to watch it go away. Or an unstoppable train. You know, if your anger is an unstoppable train, well, guess what? It's unstoppable. And what does that mean? It's going to be gone in just a minute. You know, you just are going to sit there and watch it go by on the tracks, and then it's gone. So there are lots of different imagery things that you can use. Help people find meaning by looking at the situation and changing how they think about themselves and the situation. Instead of seeing them as a failure, you know, maybe seeing the fact that, okay, they've learned one way not to do it again. So they're smarter now than they were 20 minutes ago. Um, instead of seeing the situation as all lost, you know, focusing on what has been gained in the situation, trying to find the silver lining in, in what's going on. You know, what can I get out of this? What am I supposed to learn? In what way can this be growth producing? Prayer for some works. Relaxation exercises. Um, any sort of relaxation activities, you know, yoga, stretching, deep breathing, meditation. One thing in the moment, and if, you know, when I was younger, we used to have these little paddle balls, and you'd usually paddle it four or five times, and then the ball would go flinging off ac across the house, but you could not focus on anything else while you were doing that, or you would inevitably hit somebody else or break it. So focusing on one thing in the moment means focusing on something that you're doing right now. The paddle ball, focusing on sitting in the chair, how does it feel, you know? Are you comfortable? Do you need to sit up? If you're driving, oh, please focus on that. Um, when I'm driving, uh, focusing on, you know, the birds and the power lines and the cars that are in front of you and what's going on instead of thinking about what you've got to do tomorrow at work. Weeding. I love weeding because it's actually just mentally challenging enough that you can't think about much of anything else. You're looking for those weeds and you're pulling them. And it's not just me. My son says the same thing when he goes out and, and helps me weed. He's like, yeah, I can't. It's hard for me to focus on anything else but what I'm doing right here. I'm like, good. You know, that's the time for you to clear your mind. You can take a mental vacation or a short break and encourage people to leave stress at work. And encouragement means be, being your own best friend and creating a mental coach. Somebody in the back of your head, you know, you've got that critical voice that we want to quiet, and then you have another voice in the back of your head that is telling you, you got this, you can do this, and developing that coach is really important. Part of what we talked about earlier was accepting reality, and radical acceptance is complete and total acceptance of the fact of what is, which it's, these are the facts, they're right in front of us, and then you can turn your mind and mentally look to the other side. So initially you see it, you may feel frustrated, helpless, useless, d depressed, horrible, desperate, you know, all these catastrophic things. But if you turn your mind and look at the other side, um, finding determination, en en energy, happy, strength, positive thinking. So encouraging people to look, again, at, at the other side. Turn that other cheek, if you will. And this is hard. I'm not saying it's easy at all, but it is 
so much more helpful instead of focusing and getting stuck in this pit of despair and helplessness to try to focus on, okay, I don't like this situation. What can I do to improve it? That's what we're talking about. Encourage people to see emotions differently. Remembering that fear and anger kick in when your body thinks there's a threat. It doesn't mean there's a threat. It means your body thinks there's a threat. And sadness kicks in when you lose something important. So if we didn't feel sadness, it would mean that nothing was really important. We wouldn't be experiencing loss. Negative emotions are so important to survival. So instead of trying to avoid them at all costs, embrace them. Thank your brain for sending out the alert signal. Doesn't mean it's always right, but thank your brain for telling you that there might be a problem. That's like when the smoke alarm goes off at my house. You know, it's a little annoying, but, you know, I would much rather have it go off and tell me there might be a problem than not go off when there is a problem. Now, we have donkeys at our house, so I can use this one, um, or I like using this one. Willingness versus willfulness. Willfulness forgets, ignores, or actively tries to change, master, direct, control, or manipulate what is. And when we're being willful, we're trying not to accept reality or we're trying to change things that we cannot change. We're trying to be the puppeteer. All we can control is ourselves and our reactions. Willingness is surrendering to a process in which, in which one is already a part. And donkeys are actually really smart. So when we want to think about willingness versus willfulness, a donkey, you know, doesn't always willingly surrender to a process in which they're a part until they trust their handler. Our donkeys would not walk into a um, trailer or even into the barn with us initially until they learned to trust us, until they learned that it was okay, and they surrendered to this process that we weren't going to take them anywhere that was harmful. So it, it's really important that we kind of use this analogy. Donkeys are smart. They're going to be, you know, resistant if they don't know that they're safe. So part of reality acceptance is making sure people know that they're safe, making sure people have created conditions in which they can be safe. I mean, we're not all safe all the time. You know, there are times where you may be in danger. Um, but it's important to be able to make sure that you can protect yourself and make sure that you can be safe and trust yourself, trust your instincts, and trust the people around you that you put your faith in. And that's a, that's a whole other topic to go into. Okay, half-smiling and willing hands. Emotions are partially controlled by facial expressions. If you've ever done the activity where you've walked around for 10 minutes, shuffling your feet and looking at, the, looking at the ground, and then ask somebody, how do you feel? Well, generally, we don't feel too good after that. Um, so we want people to walk with their head held high. We want people to smile, partly because that triggers more of a happy, excited, emotional response in, in the brain. So half-smiling with lips upturn, upturned, hands are unclenched, palms are up, and fingers are relaxed. It is what it is. Um, and this is hard to do, uh, but encouraging people to do it. And one of, the thing, one of the ways I have my clients try to embrace it is I want you to think about things that make you happy. You know, half smile. Even if you're going into a meeting with somebody and you're just really not looking forward to it, I want you to think about things 
that make you happy. And that helps keep that smile on your face. Be mindful of current thoughts, recognizing that they're just neural firing, not facts about the world, and they will come and fade. Just like a used car salesman, he's just telling you stuff. Um, and it's not necessarily facts about what's going on. It's just, it's what he's saying. So let what he says come in one ear and go out the other. Make your own decisions about what's going on. Additional tools, a clear mind. The addicted mind is governed by addictive behaviors. So an addictive mind is also very similar to an emotional mind where things are done impulsively. A person with an addiction is feeling urges, feeling cravings, and feeling intolerable emotional pain that they're trying to escape from, just like somebody who is in a dysregulated state in their emotional mind. In recovery for addiction or mental health, we can also talk about the clean mind. In recovery, we, in addiction recovery, we call it the pink cloud. In this state, the person forgets that relapse is possible. They're like, okay, this is awesome. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and a lot of times, this is the objective mind that is kind of divorced from those feelings and gone, okay, I've got a plan. If I do A, B, and C, then everything's going to be grand. The clear mind means not engaging in addictive or unhealthy behaviors, but remaining aware that relapse is possible. So clear mind is similar to the wise mind. It says, okay, we've got a plan, but we also recognize that there's going to be some distress and some upheaval that happens occasionally. So we need to be able to flex our plan as emotions change, as the situation changes. So a clear mind is something that we want to encourage people to, to work towards. It's not too logical and too rigid and it's not too emotional it's combining those and choosing the best response in that moment to improve to improve the next moment burning bridges and building new ones means actively eliminating triggers and vulnerabilities this is the burning bridges you're saying to yourself okay i don't need to be drinking that much caffeine because it winds me up and causes me all kinds of anxiety so i'm going to eliminate that trigger I'm going to eliminate these other vulnerabilities. I'm going to get rid of those. And then I'm going to find physical and emotional sensations and mental images that compete with my anxiety or my depression. So when I get, you know, stressed out, I have something that I can envision that will help me build new bridges toward happiness because happiness is across the river. Alternate rebellion is finding alternative ways to act out which are safer. And this is a harm reduction philosophy. Um, now, I, I use the word sublimation, and it's not true Freudian sublimation because I use the term to, to represent um, taking those unhealthy and unhelpful urges and impulses, whether they're sex or aggression or, you know, well, your id impulses, and using that energy to move forward, to do something positive. And even loud music can be alternate rebellion, but that's one of those sensations as well. Important questions when people are choosing activities to help them tolerate distress. How does this technique, whatever it is, make you feel? You know, it works for some and it may not work for others. How does it impact your feelings in the moment? And how does it affect how you handle the problem? Um, 
And yes, we definitely need to make sure that people remember that every action we do has a benefit to it. It has, in some way, shape, or form, a survival purpose. It may be an unhealthy response, but it may be the only response we have. I believe that people do the best they can with the tools they have at that given time. So we need to help them figure out, okay, what's a better way to approach it? You know, when I'm cutting wood, you know, cutting wood with a little hacksaw doesn't, you know, not very effective. So, you know, I learned how to use a circular saw. That's much more effective. Um, so we want to help people figure out how to achieve that same goal of calming down, being happier, making the pain stop in a healthier, more effective way. Remember that we all have occasional emotional comebacks. These emotions, thoughts, or urges reappear. If, I think her name was Gladys from Bewitched. She would always show back up. We want to notice these um, feelings and things without negative judgment. Tolerate the distress and problem solve. After my dog um, was hit by a car, you know, for months afterwards, I would have those emotional comebacks. Initially, it was really hard, but they got those comebacks got fewer and further between. But when they would come back, instead of going, oh, I shouldn't still be upset about this, I was just like, you know, I really miss the little bugger. And tolerate the distress and then figure out what to do to problem solve. Once clients are mindfully aware of their thoughts, sensations, and urges and are willing to accept the moment, they need to tolerate that distress. They can be willing to do it, but then they need to have the skills to actually sit through the distress and go, okay, this is really unpleasant. Help clients develop a menu of options that they can keep with them, which they can select from when they're in a crisis. So index card, it's a great thing. Remind them that they feel how they feel, and that's okay. And there are ways they can learn to tolerate the distress until the intense emotions subside and they can get into their wise mind. They're not just sitting there waiting for it to pass and then going on about their merry way. They're waiting for the intensity to pass so they can make the best choice of how to use their energy to do things to help them live a rich and meaningful life. Alrighty, are there any questions? Now, if you know somebody who's interested in distress tolerance, they weren't in the webinar today, but they want to learn about it, um, it will be released on Counselor Toolbox Podcast, which is available on just about any podcast app, and um, it will also be available on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash allceuseducation. Alrighty, everybody, thank you so much for being here today, and I will see you on Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.